I'm Dr. Vanessa Sinclair, and this is Rendering Unconscious. My guest today is Brianna Sleslavik, a licensed master social worker with a background in community organizing, racial justice and equity work, clinical social work, psychotherapy, and wellness support. She has an upcoming group on Situating Abolition, which will be held on Sundays in June, beginning June 6th, from 9.30 a.m. till 11 a.m. Eastern Time. The group is on a sliding scale. For more information, please visit her website, briannasleslavik.com, and follow her at Instagram, at briannasleslavik. B-R-I-A-N-N-A-S-U-S-L-O-V-I-C. As for most Rendering Unconscious podcast episodes, there's also a video accompanying this episode. Just visit Trapart Films' YouTube channel. That's T-R-A-P-A-R-T Film at YouTube. Or search for Rendering Unconscious podcast. Rendering Unconscious is also a book. Rendering Unconscious Psychoanalytic Perspectives politics, and poetry, available from Trapart Books. For more, please visit their website, trapart.net. That's T-R-A-P-A-R-T dot net. Many thanks to our supporters at Patreon. You can support the podcast at our Patreon. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com forward slash Vanessa 23 Carl that's V-A-N-E-S-S-A 2-3 C-A-R-L thank you so much for your support for more information you can visit Rendering Unconscious Rain website renderingunconscious.org you may also visit my website drvanessasinclair.net That's D-R-V-A-N-E-S-S-A S-I-N-C-L-A-I-R dot net Slavic. I am a clinical social worker in Brooklyn, New York, um, and I have a bit of a background in um, a little bit of psychodynamic and psychoanalytic work from my MSW at Smith, um, and I have also grown to love studying and, and thinking about things through an analytic lens, primarily because I think those theories have a lot to tell us about the ways that uh, group dynamics and political dynamics play out. So from that perspective, um, I find a lot of my 
interests, um, ultimately coming back to theories that I think have their roots in a lot of really analytic ways of seeing the world. Um, and also certainly in my own practices um, in the jobs that I've held as a social worker, I found it really useful to be able to conceptualize situations and interactions through that lens. So the work that I do now is um, at an organization in Queens that works with mostly people who are re-entering um, after being incarcerated, some for a short period of time in jail, others for a longer period of time um, in prison. And um, the organization provides many services, um, but the area that I work within is our mental health clinic with a mix of clients who are mandated to treatment by the court or by parole or probation, along with some clients who are interested in voluntary treatment um, to most of the time begin processing uh, things like anger and trauma that feel very prevalent in their day-to-day -day existence. So in this role, um, I've had a lot of really positive experiences integrating psychodynamic thought. Um, and also in this role, I've, I've gotten to think through the ways that mandated treatment um, is so limited and limiting. Um, so in that capacity, I think it's been really helpful to know that um, one way of understanding the mandate in a, in a treatment that I might do is by thinking of it as a third um, or like another presence in, in the dynamic between me and the client. Um, and then, you know, in the work that I was doing before this job, I think I was also very much thinking about the court system as a third in all of my interactions with clients from more of an advocacy perspective when I was at a public defender's office here in the city doing a lot of sentencing advocacy and um, mitigation work with clients who had um, attorneys who were public defenders. They were charged with crimes in the borough of Brooklyn. And um, my role there was mostly focused on trying to create opportunities for prosecutors to give my clients um, alternatives to the jail or prison sentences they were facing. Yeah, that's amazing. And I think that's a really great way of thinking about it, thinking about these kinds of system, systemic issues as a third, or the court system or the mandated part of it. Um, I found, I used to work at Woodhull in, in Brooklyn, mm -hmm. and I found that people that had been through a lot of different bureaucratic systems that were very violent and racist, um, they really, really appreciated having more of a psychodynamic clinician who um, wasn't just like kind of treating them in this like very bureaucratic like childlike way because I found like when I was training for my PsyD and I had a CB more CBT supervisor I felt like giving people worksheets with like this is the thought bubble and like the different way you think about something changes the situation you're in or whatever really felt to me like treating people like children and mm -hmm. I just couldn't speak to adults like that <laughs> like I don't want to <laughs> talk to my adult patients this way Right, right. And I think, you know, it's a, a similar sort of sentiment that I have working in this particular role with people who are coming from mostly CBT oriented work um, with clients. I think that the challenge for me has also been working within a system that demands a certain amount of measurability and like uh, compliance tracking. <laughs> Um, and so I think that that's more broadly a concern in community mental health, but especially when um, courts are expecting to get report backs um, or to be somehow involved in the treatment um, to see measurable results based on what they deem to be the, 
presenting problem. So in that regard, you know, it's, it's perhaps uh, possible to sort of conceptualize some of the individual therapy that I'm doing almost more through like a family therapy um, or group therapy lens in which there are different actors playing different roles and creating different kinds of dynamics within the treatment that then complicate the direct um, work that I'm able to do with my client. So I agree with you. I think that in a lot of ways, um, psychodynamic work lends itself to people who have lived through multiple traumas and also lived within systems that don't allow them to be adult human beings. Um, and in so many ways, like allowing clients to make the kinds of connections that they need to make from earlier life experiences to what problems are repeating themselves now um, becomes an opportunity to also acknowledge the structural forces that have shaped some of those earlier life and also present life experiences that have been traumatizing or challenging to them. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Yeah, so mm -hmm. let's talk about your group that you have coming up. Um, sure. Make sure to plug it right away. Yes. <laughs> so the group that I'm running is called Situating Abolition. It's a group that's open to clinicians and non-clinicians. Um, and it is born mostly out of having worked pretty close up to the jail, prison, and um, policing industrial complex within New York City specifically. And over time, developing a pretty strong abolitionist stance. Um, and I think that, you know, with that caveat, there's many, many ways of understanding abolition. And certainly in the past year, abolition has become a word that is used by more people. Um, so the disclaimer on the course is that it is hopefully an exposure to different ways of thinking about abolition, different ways of understanding histories of prison abolition specifically, um, doing so ideally with a lens toward um, the ways that, you know, social theory, uh, benefits from psychoanalytic work, um, and also the ways in which um, I think all of us, regardless of how quote unquote close we are to these systems, um, are implicated by them. So in that regard, um, the course is designed for all levels, um, and it meets, hopefully, this first iteration, we'll see how the timing works, but it'll be an hour and a half from 9.30 to 11 a.m. Eastern time, uh, on Sundays in June. So the course is also offered on a sliding scale. Uh, we'll meet over Zoom and I'll provide a suggested syllabus with access to readings um, with the intention mostly being for this to be a space of um, sort of muddling as opposed to any more structured teaching environment that we might think of. Um, a friend of mine described um, a course that they were running is a Germinar, which I appreciate um, because it's suggesting that the ideas germinate instead of a seminar where like, you know, one person plants the seed. We're, we're hopefully doing work in a setting like this where we're pollinating and spreading uh, more widely a lot of the benefits and um, challenges that I think an abolitionist framework has to offer both to your non-clinician, but also specifically to those of us who have worked or are working in um, psychiatric settings. That's amazing. And maybe you could talk a little bit about a tiny bit, this is gonna be a classroom show, but maybe a tiny bit about the history of abolition, the idea. Yeah, that's great. Okay, so I feel like the tough part about, uh, yeah, the tough part about this is that I don't know that there's uh, 
a singular way to summarize the history. Um, but I will say that I think some of the most prominent voices who have consistently advocated um, for abolition in the, the United States context, specifically the two names that come to mind most readily are Angela Davis and also Ruth Wilson Gilmore, um, both Black women, both um, have been sort of involved in, in sort of academic discourse around abolition for decades at this point. Um, Angela Davis also has a history, obviously, of involvement with the Black Panther Party in a pretty significant way and direct criminalization as a result of that involvement. Um, and Ruth Wilson Gilmore is interesting to me because she um, is trained as a geographer. And so uh, her book, The Golden Gulag, speaks specifically to um, both the building of prisons in California and also the resistance and opposition that came to um, the process of building those prisons from a very abolitionist standpoint. Um, I think the other folks who I really respect whose voices are a part of the conversation around abolition in the United States are um, Mariam Kaba, um, who runs a blog and Twitter called Prison Culture. Um, she's a former youth worker and I think has a lot of really helpful perspectives on how abolition is an ideology that young people are able to take up um, and also to enact. Um, and I think similar to actually what you were saying earlier on, just about the ways that often systems infantilize adults, I think systems also um, impose a lot of uh, like voicelessness on young people. Um, so I think her perspective is really wonderful in that regard that she offers this uh, very sort of practical approach that's based in understanding young people as a part of the work that we have to do. Um, I think also, you know, certainly there are a lot of other really wonderful scholars who've written about the prison industrial complex. I think a lot of people have come to understand what they do understand through the work of Michelle Alexander, who wrote The New Jim Crow. Um, and I think that the other sort of ideas and, and um, work that's sort of being advanced comes sometimes through collective voices. Um, so through organizations and organizing groups like Critical Resistance, which is a national network of incarcerated and um, free world folks who have been very much involved in trying to dismantle as many aspects of the prison industrial complex as possible um, for quite a while at this point. So it is really exciting to me that there are um, so many, I think, Black women-led moments in the US history of abolition as someone who's multiracial and black. Um, and that I think also that tells us something very important about um, who is likely very directly impacted by policing and by incarceration and by the structure of um, most criminal legal um, systems, not just in the United States, but I think specifically in my knowledge base in the United States. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. No, I'm, I'm really happy to start seeing this shift where people are looking more at the systems that are causing these issues because they've been so focused, the systems have been focused on making individuals feel like everything is wrong with them, that everybody okay. has some sort of defect or is a problem or is a criminal. And I'm glad to see the, the shift happening where people are starting to realize that there's not something wrong with everyone. <laughs> right, exactly. And I think that when we when we zoom out um, and also like take some of the key sort of like diagnostic tools that we have that we are applying to individuals and think about those same diagnostic tools 
on a bigger scale, it gives us an opportunity to understand the ways in which, for example, I think prisons are often this way of dissociating um, problematic actions um, that have been projected onto people out of the mainstream consciousness. So, you know, understanding the ways that uh, for Americans, it has been a simpler and more straightforward solution to lock people up for decades um, than to think about like the other ways that the money and attention and manpower that goes into the prison system could be utilized to prevent, you know, what I think is often referred to as recidivism, um, or the idea that someone would then end up back in prison after spending a significant time in prison. So um, in many, many ways, I think it is really exciting to see that this is finally um, the level of sort of understanding that people are arriving at, where it's not just about individual problem people, but about a system that is designed to problematize people. Mm -hmm. Yeah, exactly. And it's something like, even though the U.S. is only like four and a half percent of the world population, it has like 20 or 25 percent of the prison population. Yeah, yeah. I think that the sort of disproportionate numbers there are also really fascinating to think about, even on on the scale of um, sort of like procedurally how people become locked up in the United States. So, um, you know, I'm in New York and New York recently passed some bail reform laws, but um, I think in the majority of other countries, it's actually pretty uncommon for people to be detained on bail before trial. Um, I think that the other thing that's very uh, alarming to me about the way that the uh, criminal justice or criminal legal system works in the United States is the number of cases that are resolved through plea bargaining and a guilty plea without a trial. And so uh, I think in both of those kind of procedural moments, one in which, you know, if you are able to vouch for your goodness as a person through your wealth, um, you're allowed to go free. Also then the other system being, you know, um, the assumption actually is not anymore that people are innocent until proven guilty, but that people need to cop out to something and say that they're guilty or say that they're bad so that they can, you know, have their case processed more quickly and potentially get a better deal than the sentence they would face at trial. Both of those, I think, um, practices really reinforce the, the idea that uh, anybody who is uh, arrested is automatically entitled to less agency and less social support and less um, access to you know, the things that could have prevented an arrest than the people who remain very far outside of these systems. Yeah, no, it's so messed up and thinking about um, thinking about these deals that are made that are really like, they seem like these power plays more between lawyers rather than having anything to do with the actual client or person that's been arrested. Right, right. And I think that, you know, based in my previous job, uh, I think that the sort of like uh, challenge that exists often in uh, general, like social service or community mental health settings in which someone has to be able to prove that they meet a threshold of clinical need or, you know, that they're a positive clinical case in order to receive services. Um, I think the same kind of mentality translates into the kind of plea bargaining that happens, at least in, in New York City, pretty broadly, um, where for cases where a prosecutor or district attorney is unwilling to make an offer and wants to go to trial and win a case against somebody, um, the way around that is to um, write something called a mitigation report, which is, in my eyes, a, 
basically a biased psychosocial of somebody um, that intends to portray them in the most sympathetic light, offer insight about the ways that systems have played a role in ongoing, um, quote, issues that somebody might have experienced prior to their arrest. Um, and to use that document as a way of convincing the attorney for the state that somebody is deserving of an opportunity to not be locked up. Um, so I think that with, with that mentality, it's, it's very difficult, obviously, to be able to actually portray someone in their, in their full humanity in a single document. Um, you know, there has been a push to allow for more video mitigation. So there are now, you know, filmmakers who have, you know, been able to create like five minute films for people. Um, and that, that kind of work is really exciting in some ways from a narrative standpoint, but the context in which this um, communication is happening, I think is something that gets um, lost pretty easily, which is, you know, that ultimately like one person's freedom and liberty is actually just in the hands of another person who has the ability to choose how, it, how extensively they would like to get to know the other person involved. Um, most of the time, I think also like prosecutors um, who are doing work for, you know, victims of crime um, are, are engaged in the kind of splitting that I think has to happen in order for this system to remain as, as reified as it is, right? Their, their job is to be advocates for victims in their eyes. And in doing that work, um, they're allowed to have access to a huge amount of discretionary power. Um, because we've deemed them to be on the victim side and the uh, attorney for a defendant to be on the side of the perpetrator. Um, again, like the assumption is sort of like in the room before the people are in the room. Um, so I think from that perspective as well, it's, it's a very um, humbling dynamic to, to step into, to be involved in um, the kinds of negotiations that happen for misdemeanors and felonies um, that often erase someone's um, wholeness in favor of creating a narrative that works for a specific person in charge of deciding what happens to them. Um, and yeah, I think that that, again, sort of speaks back to the, the level of bureaucracy and level of sort of um, monotony that becomes a part of a system that becomes as big as the United States criminal legal system. The number of cases that have to be processed the number of cases on a public defender's caseload, the number of cases that a prosecutor has going at one given time, like all of those are additional factors that contribute to the sort of pressures of wanting to succinctly communicate, you know, the most horrific thing that's happened to someone as a reason why they should be given um, more leniency in whatever punishment is, is deemed appropriate for them. Um, so I think within that, within that um, split of like victim and perpetrator also, um, there's not room for any sort of abolitionist thinking to emerge. I think the way that I understand my own desire for abolition is that um, having worked with people who are accused of doing horrible things, um, I also know that horrible things have been done to most of them. And, and understanding that the idea that someone who is victimized will never again cause harm or has not caused harm prior to being victimized is not a particularly realistic um, or integrated understanding of human nature. So I, yeah, I think I fall back on Melanie Klein a lot and think a lot about the ways that um, particularly like splitting and dissociation become a part of every 
micro interaction that happens within this broader system that promotes the kind of splitting on a larger scale. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I mean, it's terrifying. It's terrifying how much power these systems have over people's lives. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. I think that it feels very much, um, very much scary to me in, in the way also that um, people outside of the system, I think, have uh, so few opportunities to witness it. Um, I think that that's something that has also been um, part of my sort of process in designing the group is, is figuring out ways to make sure that everyone has the same understanding of the basic procedures that happen in a criminal court case that might lead to someone being incarcerated. Um, I think when we understand um, the ways that systems work, then we're much better able to start dismantling them. And I think one of the unfortunate things about the court and criminal legal system in the United States is that um, people who have no business being in court are never in court, um, except maybe for jury duty, in which they're given a very small sliver of access to um, what a trial might look like, but not what you know the plea bargaining leading up to the trial looked like, or what the actual event was like for any of the parties involved. So in that regard, I think that because this is a system that can be invisible to so many people, it's also a system that has um, sort of unchecked power. Um, and a lot of that power comes through the discretion of judges or prosecutors who, um, in many ways, I think are aware that they have the upper hand over um, my clients' lives. Yeah, and especially when so many like federal judges, for example, get like lifetime appointments. Right, exactly. I think that in, in many contexts as well, like understanding the ways that judges, you know, come to consider the cases in front of them is, is something that I think I was able to get a, a closer glimpse at when I was appearing before the same judges over and over again with my clients. And in that particular realm, um, so much of what I think was going through judges' minds for a lot of my clients was very much a sort of like risk management protocol as opposed to a um, mindset that allowed them to impartially review evidence. Um, I think that the concern often in terms of um, people being out of jail while their case is pending, for example, um, is a judge's anxiety that they might be, you know, blamed for letting somebody go who then commits a horrible atrocity while they're out instead of being in jail. Um, So the idea of jail as a place where people are, you know, confined because they can't pay bail is one that's being phased out now because of bail reforms, but there's still um, quite a lot of anxiety about a group that we have deemed to be violent felony offenders or violent felony defendants um, as a class of people who maybe are still going to be held, just not with bail. Like they'll be remanded without any option of getting out of jail while their case is pending unless there's a judge who decides that it's okay or safe or low enough risk for them to be released. And the release could still involve regular check-ins with, you know, the sheriff's department or uh, an electronic ankle monitor. So understanding judges' anxieties about being seen as lenient or being blamed for future harm, I think does a lot in terms of my understanding of um, the kinds of anxieties that allow for 
this entire system to be held together the way that it is. Yeah, exactly. It's like more about the judges and the prosecutors and, and less about the actual science, the actual people uh, right. being put through the system. Exactly. Yeah. I think that the, the deeply existential level of anxiety that feels very present when these systems are challenged also is really telling, right? Like that it is very difficult for the average person to um, feel comfortable with the idea of not having a place to confine bad people. Um, I think that that level of anxiety is, is understandable given that this is the messaging that we've received since the very beginning of um, most of our upbringings, that there are bad people who go to a bad place where no one can be harmed by them anymore. Um, and they are being punished for whatever bad thing they've done as a bad person. Um, that kind of like rhetoric, I think, like leaves out room for there to be good people or good enough people um, who are in bad situations or who do cause harm and do bad things, um, who for whatever reason, depending on the gravity of whatever bad thing has happened, have to carry that badness with them through the rest of their lives, either in a prison or through, you know, job applications and apartment applications and um, sex offender registries and all of the other ways in which um, someone loses access and loses liberty for much longer normally than a prison term alone. Yeah, exactly. And um, I felt the same way, like working in the hospital system, like at Woodhall, for example, I worked in the Paul Perasti Center, which is the HIV clinic. And, you know, I feel like a lot of people they don't see these systems up close because like, like I only saw the medical system up close um, because of the fact that I was working within it. But before I had started working within it, I had no idea how horrific some of these hospital systems are, you know, for example, and the same thing with the prison system. Um, and so I think for a lot of people, they just, they, there's a lot of will for ignorance, but there's a lot of just ignorance. They're just not exposed to it. They don't think about it. And they don't really know what's going on. So talking about it and raising awareness is so important. Exactly. Right. And I, you know, I think that as someone who came into this um, from my, you know, super clinical MSW where I worked in hospitals, getting up close to the court system in particular was such a steep learning curve um, that I also felt like the beginning of my work with clients was um, work that indicated that they knew much more about the system than I did. And of course they did because they had been living in it. Um, whereas I was a newcomer who had been able to opt out of it for you know the first 23 years of my life. Um, so stepping in and, and learning about like the process of someone getting arrested and arraigned and potentially having bail set on them and then potentially being locked up while their case was going on and then potentially agreeing to a plea deal that would send them upstate to prison in you know, upstate New York for a year or two more, um, that procedure was not something that I had any familiarity with when I first stepped into doing this work. Um, and I think I also entered into the job very much with um, the fantasy that the clients that I was working with would all be innocent and wrongfully accused. <laughs> And so um, I think that in many, many ways, my, my own sort of naive approach to this work initially um, came from a place of um, 
emerging narratives at the time, I think, around the ways that there were so many wrongful convictions um, that were being overturned by groups like the Innocence Project in the United States, for example, you know. So getting access to that narrative um, in some way like fueled my interest, but then also immediately I, I felt compelled to have to let go of that narrative for the sake of being able to do the work that I wanted to do from a place of seeing someone not as just, you know, a flattened good or bad. Um, especially given that I think like the clients that I work with have the same kind of complexities and flaws that uh, most people have. And so understanding that somebody's um, worthy of care and worthy of respect and worthy of someone to witness what they're going through and to be there with them in it, even if they have caused harm um, is something that I think has been really an important uh, moral process for me to be engaged in, to sort of understand that ideally whoever my client has harmed is also having access to you know, whatever victim services they need, but that my client in order to not repeat this harm or to be able to step out of the repetition that he's in um, is also in need of some kind of intervention that the majority of society perhaps believes that he he shouldn't have access to. Um, I think when we when we think about the history of prisons um, and jails in the United States as well, there's such an interesting history around words like penitentiary, um, or when we think about corrections or correctional facilities, um, that there's this idea of rehabilitation as being a part of what happens in prisons. Um, and there's the idea that, um, you know, even the jails where people are being held before they've been convicted of anything um, are places where um, the Department of Corrections is in charge of things. Um, so this idea of rehabilitation and correction being very prevalent in um, these physical spaces of confinement is something that I think also bears um, reminding, right, that, that this is also sort of a false narrative that very much is a part of what we want to believe about what happens in prisons and jails. We want to believe that people who go there are both being held there because it's safer for society and also because they need to be fixed in some way because they enter as inherently bad people. Um, so when we operate off of that logic, I think something that very easily gets lost is the idea that um, harm is done in all of these places on a very big scale, um, perhaps to a greater extent than it is possible to do healing or restorative or rehabilitative work in any of these places. Um, which I think in some way relates to even the, the idea of doing work on a mandated basis with clients. I think for anybody who's worked with mandated clients in therapy, um, or to try to provide them other mandated services, there is such an awareness of um, resistance as something that is very present in a different way than resistance might be for any client who's voluntarily choosing to opt into a weekly session or two. And so understanding that the resistance is there for good reason and that often the prescribed solution coming from a judge um, to fix a bad person by sending them to therapy um, is not something that's going to work if the idea behind therapy is still that it is taking place as a punishment or in lieu of another punishment. Um, 
I think that that's been the biggest realization for me that mandates are not an effective way to create any kind of change in any person who doesn't want to be in treatment or to participate in any sort of self-change because a judge or a court is holding a jail sentence over their head. That makes a lot of sense too. And that's what I found like also was like the more psychoanalytic treatment instead of like the more uh, CBT or procedural based treatments. Like it ultimately has to come from within the person. Um, right. Yeah. And I think that that's why in, in so many carceral settings, whether they be settings like mine now, where people are doing alternative to incarceration mandates with the understanding that if they don't complete, they'll go to jail or prison or within the actual jails and prisons themselves, I think the much more um, convenient option in terms of treatment is often to take uh, like psychoeducation and manualized treatment as the only approach that might possibly work um, because it involves a lot of uh, the clinician giving information to the client as opposed to the client bringing in information and allowing for both parties to sort of like sift through it and, and experience it together. Um, in many ways, I think it allows for a level of um, experience distance that I think can be really um, yearned for by people who get close to these systems and then become overwhelmed by them for good reason. Um, so just being able to recognize the ways that it is um, not surprising that we would see a one-size-fits-all solution um, or set of ideas um, that sort of appear in, in multiple areas, right? Like it's not, it's not necessarily like a CBT problem. It's a problem of parole officers choosing to refer every client they supervise to the same three services of anger management, substance use, and mental health counseling, whether or not any of these clients would actually be in a place to benefit from those services. So I think that in many, many ways, um, the sort of infantilization that you were describing at the beginning is something that, um, gets magnified the longer that somebody stays within a carceral system. Well, that makes sense. And I saw that you're going to have another group as well. Yeah, so I'm, I'm definitely excited to get this one up and running as well. Um, I don't yet have information on timing, but I'm excited that um, there's interest in this um, because it's something that I've been thinking about for a while. Um, which is just that there's been an advent of the phrase trauma-informed care across not just um, psychological modalities, but also in medicine in general, and also in nonprofit settings where social services are provided. Um, there's a huge emphasis on what, what trauma-informed care has to offer to all of these locations and settings and encounters. And I think on the one hand, I'm very bought in on the idea that if we all have an awareness of the potential traumas that we carry around in ourselves and that others may also be carrying, we're better people to each other. Um, my, my hesitation is that I think often um, trauma-informed care becomes a way of um, presuming what clients need. Um, and prescribing a particular presentation um, that a client needs to have in order for us to respond um, or be informed by their trauma. 
Um, so I think I've seen organizations that have blanket policies that are very helpful for some survivors of certain traumas and very unhelpful for others. Or I've seen ways that, um, in my mind, trauma-informed care as a framework has you know, a potential to oversimplify the ways in which someone can acknowledge what might be traumatic to them and what might not. Um, so it's a, it's a kind of thinking that I think has the risk of creating um, new problems for us to be thinking through. And so um, with a lot of the discourse that exists around trauma and risk and resilience, um, I'm putting together a, a syllabus with some of those ideas wrapped up in it with the hope that that group in particular can be majority clinician or majority case manager at least, um, so that people who are located within these systems that have adopted or tried to adopt this mentality and this way of operating have a place to be able to critically process what some of the implications have been in their work and what ways our work can still be trauma-informed or can still be responsive to the traumas that many of our encounters will inherently uncover without necessarily doing the kind of flattening that I think is very possible with any sort of um, trend like that. Yeah, exactly. It's like the same thing. It's, it, this is not so one way or the other. People are complicated and complex. <laughs> you exactly, can't oversimplify right. any of this. <laughs> exactly, right. And, and there's not a prescribed way to respond consistently to any experience that someone might come in with. Um, there's ways to be informed by different ways of being and thinking, but um, yeah, it feels very oversimplified to me to say that the whole story is that everyone just has to make sure that you you know allow the client to sit closer to the door than you and they don't have their back to the door and that's all you have to do to be informed um so things like that i think are, are on my radar as areas that i want to be able to explore with other people um and i am really excited for this group to come together after i finish situating abolition yeah i think it's really great that you're doing these groups and you know, these kinds of continuing education, not just the continuing education that we have to do for our state licenses, but like real continuing education of things you're really interested in and getting different perspectives and learning different theorists and theories is really important because you can pick and choose from them. Like when you're with different clients, you know, this theory might come into mind versus another. And one, one might really resonate with me, but depending on who I'm sitting with, you know, I might have other theorists or ways of working come to mind to work so exactly. it's great to have all these kinds of tools in your pocket as a clinician yeah i'm i'm super excited about the response i've gotten so far to situating abolition and i really appreciate what you just said because i do think that it is a stance or a way of thinking about the world that i've grown into and i'm excited to see other people who want to grow into it and who want to also make some of the connections that i haven't made myself because of my own line of work but with regard to working for example in hospitals and working in psychiatric units and understanding the ways that a lot of the carceral attitudes that exist in prisons and jails are also present in these other locations where so many of us in this field are located um, so i am really really excited to be able to share it and also excited to hopefully have other people um, who can teach me a lot Thank you for listening to Rendering Unconscious. You've just heard a discussion with Brianna Sleslovic. 
to join her study group, Situating Abolition, and to follow her work, please visit her website, briannasleslevic.com, and follow her at Instagram, at briannasleslevic. That's B-R-I-A-N-N-A-S-U-S-L-O-V-I-C. The Situating Abolition Group begins on June 6th and runs for four weeks on Sundays in June from 9.30 to 11 a.m. Eastern Time and is available on a sliding scale. For more information, you can visit Rendering Unconscious website renderingunconscious.org You can also visit my website drvanessasinclair.net Check out other Rendering Unconscious podcast episodes at YouTube. Every episode of Rendering Unconscious has a video at YouTube. Just visit Trapart Films YouTube channel. That's T-R-A-P-A-R-T film at YouTube. Rendering Unconscious is also a book. Rendering Unconscious, Psychoanalytic Perspectives, Politics, and Poetry. Available from Trapart Books. Please visit the publisher's website, trapart.net. And you can support the podcast at our Patreon, patreon.com forward slash Vanessa 23 Carl. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com forward slash V-A-N-E-S-S-A 23 C-A-R-L. Thank you so much for your support. The track at the end of this episode is Follow My Voice for Hapchipset. From an album I did with Swedish artist Per Olund. Enjoy. Every day that I was in Egypt, I saw the sunrise and set. Every single day. If I could travel anywhere, I would travel everywhere with you. One endless trip with occasional stops to assemble with a case documentation to assemble with a case documentation we make art of what we experience and as what we experience is interpreted by us as art we have come to inhabit a zone that is creatively ultra conducive to new ideas and experiences and then we make art of those two. Tell me a secret 
tell me a story, one of your life, because I want you to connect with me. To connect because I want follow my voice because I use your ears to see your your eyes to ingest your hands to feel your to feel I'm going to show you a few things and I need you to really see them Things aren't always what they seem here, so you have to be prepared. I am an animist, artist, and author who works with remnants of the dead and the discarded to create talismanic and totemic art like aspirin or something for the headache of life. Yes, there is a kind of humor here, which is not bad. It might even be the announcement of a period when humor would be introduced, when people would not be so serious and money would not be so important, and there would be time for leisure with you.